Support for LAist comes from FX, presenting Fargo, from creator Noah Hawley. This anthology series follows as a Midwestern housewife attempts to evade her past. Starring Juno Temple, John Hamm, and Jennifer Jason Lee. Episodes at fxnetworks.com FYC. Support comes from Rancho La Puerta, a health resort 45 minutes from San Diego. Summer retreat packages of three, four, or seven nights include hiking, water classes, mindfulness, and farm-to-table dining. RancholaPuerta.com. It's Air Talk here on LAist 89.3 and live streaming on Instagram at LAist Official. That's L-A-I-S-T Official. Austin Cross with you, joining you as always for another fantastic Friday. Thanks so much for being here today. Larry is back next hour with Film Week. And coming up on Food Friday, we are bringing the breads. James Beard nominee for Outstanding Bakery, Gusto Bread, is sharing some goodies with us. I have them in front of me right now. Get ready to dive into those a little bit later in the show. They look so, so good. But we start with the Cal State University system. You might recall that faculty and students staged a brief, very brief strike last month after contract negotiations broke down. They wanted more money, parental leave, handful of things. But then, almost as quickly as it started, it ended, much to the surprise of several faculty members. Word was they struck a tentative deal. And next week, CSU faculty will vote on it. Not everyone's loving it, though. We're going to dig into the details of that deal in just a minute. But if you are a Cal State faculty member, I would love to hear what you make of it. 866-893-5722 is our number. That's 866-893-5722. If you're a member of the Cal State University faculty, we would love to hear what you think about this tentative deal that's up for a vote next week. There's also our email address, atcomments at laist.com. Just be sure to include your name and location, but we do have a line open for you right now, 866-893-5722. With us to talk about this all is LAist Community College's reporter, Julia Barajas. She's been covering the story for us. Julia, thank you so much for coming on this morning. Of course. Good morning. How are you? I'm stellar now that you're here, Julia. (laughs) Um, So speak to me just to start off about how surprised some Cal State faculty were to learn last month that a deal had been reached so quickly. Yeah, so um, as you mentioned earlier, um, they were preparing to be out there for an entire week, right? Um, And then that Monday, the first day of the strike, they were out in the rain. Um, My my colleagues and I were actually, we started off at Cal State LA to speak to the people who were on the picket line. And there was just like a very, like an era of, of, I don't want to use the word necessarily excitement, but just like of, of solidarity, I suppose. Um, a lot of the faculty that we've spoken to since the deal was announced were saying, you know, like our students were out there, they even brought their families, and we were just like, one, prepared to be out there an entire week at least, and then two, um, I think they wanted to see what would happen in terms of like gaining support, like also from the public. But the, the big issue is that after one day like that night, they got an email saying, hey, the strike is over and here's the deal. And they were all kind of like, what? Right. Yeah. I think that that's a natural reaction, especially if you were to go to strike, then all of a sudden it's overnight. It's OK, so we've got a tentative deal and you're like, OK, so so tell me some details of this. We now have the details. They weren't available immediately after uh, that strike was called off. Uh, faculty, of course, did not get all that they were asking for, but hoping you can, Julia, take us through the details of this tentative agreement between CSU and the California Faculty Association. Maybe give me a what they 
got versus what they wanted sort of perspective. Okay. Um, so generally speaking, the faculty union was um, for months had been asking, sorry, had been asking for at least 12%, um, hmm. a 12% salary increase for all faculty members. Um, instead, uh, the tentative agreement they have right now, there is a 5% general salary increase. So that's for all faculty and it would be retroactive to last July. Um, It'll be a lot of numbers. Oh, I apologize to everyone listening. Um, We're doing the numbers. <laughs> Marketplace <laughs> and, and, style. <laughs> Give me the numbers. And then um, there's also a another uh, 5% general um, salary increase for all faculty that would go into effect July 1st of this year. Mm -hmm. um, but that's only if the state doesn't reduce base funding to CSU. Now, that's a major sticking point. Let's actually pause on that one right mm -hmm. now because that uh, is based off of funding. Um, so CSU offered series of three 5% raises overall, but two of them, so one of them retroactive, two of them contingent on state funding. How concerned are faculty considering uh, we're currently looking at a budget gap, uh, $38 billion, I think is the latest number on that. Yeah. So just as you mentioned, um, of, of the salary increases, like the, the two that I just mentioned, the way that the faculty union, like the leadership is promoting it, and they're saying that you're going to get a 10% raise in the, in the next six months. But a lot of the faculty that we've spoken to, the ones who are concerned about this, they're saying like, given that projected $38 billion, sorry, $38 billion deficit, um, they worry that that conditional 5% pay raise may not pan out. Talking right now with Julia Barajas. She is Elias Community College's reporter. She's been covering this story from the CSU strike now to voting, which is going to happen next week. We were going through the list, Julia, of uh, other things that are appearing on this tentative agreement. Another one is a higher salary floor for the lowest paid faculty. Uh, mm -hmm. They'll get a, a 2.65% uh, service salary increase. There's also uh, other things in this deal, like access to union reps, uh, increase in paid parental leave from six to 10 weeks. Tell me a little bit about the people, though, who are not uh, tenured professors. Specifically, there's a lot of part-timers uh, within this union. How are they feeling right now? I know that there's the, the, the salary increase, the base level increase, but are they getting uh, as much out of this deal as maybe they had wanted before? I think there's there's kind of a mixed bag, to be honest. There are some people who are just very grateful that their, the salary floor was increased. Um, but depending on, on it, it kind of depends on how long you've been teaching and how many units you teach and, and things like that. Um, and then if you're a librarian or a coach, et cetera. So there's a lot of a lot of math and a lot of little variables involved. But the, the, the issue is that some people are very grateful for, you know, a pay bump. But a lot of people are saying, like, it's still not enough. It doesn't take us to where we need to be to you know, all, all of us, um, not just the faculty at the CSU have been grappling with inflation. Um, and they're saying like, that's not enough. And then I think the other, um, you know, at the same time, some people are happy. But I, I think the, the what, what I've learned or what I've gathered is that figuring out how much you stand to potentially gain um, is complicated. Um, and what the faculty union has done is that they, um, actually put together a like a four page flow chart to help um, everyone, everyone, including part timers, figure out like what they could earn if the deal goes through. 
We're talking right now with Julia Barajas. She is our LAS Community College's reporter. If you are a Cal State faculty member, if you were part of uh, this union that uh, negotiated this tentative deal that will be voted on next week, you can give us a call at 866-893-5722. Let us know what you think of the deal. Do you love it? Do you have some criticisms for it? 866-893-5722 is our number. Elaine is calling us from Long Beach. Elaine, how do you plan to vote? I'm planning to vote yes. This tentative agreement, should it pass, means at least at least an $8,000 increase in my annual salary, which is which serves a material immediate need. Um, my son also goes to Kelsey and Long Beach. His tuition is about to go up 6%, and this covers that increase and more. So that helps to cover the increase that's coming. Uh, Elaine, as far as uh, that increase goes, and the negotiation process overall, do you feel like you're coming out truly ahead here, that you got what you wanted out of this deal? I think so. I mean, I've been teaching for over 18 years, starting a very part-time six units. And uh, and from what I've seen, this is really the best deal that we can get. And I think that uh, that we do need to take the deal. And also, it gives us more time to plan for the full contract bargaining agreement next year. So Elaine is a yes in Long Beach, 866-893-5722. If you are a Cal State faculty member and you're voting on the tentative agreement, which uh, voting will happen next week, Juan is calling us from Echo Park. Juan, I understand that you are an English professor for Cal State LA. How do you plan to vote? Yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, I totally respect all of my coworkers' opinions. Um I'm planning on voting no. I don't think this is a good deal. I kind of can't believe we settled for a 5% raise that's totally contingent next year. So I'm not expecting getting any raise next year. Um, This deal also really um, doesn't do anything for our students. It doesn't lower the the, class sizes or increase the number of site counselors. Um, And... Yeah, I just think we left a lot of power on the table. Um, We had a really energized uh, strike going on, and it was sort of called off without any member input, um, with very little kind of internal um, communication. So I think we can do a lot better. That's Juan in Echo Park. Juan, thank you so much for giving us a call. He is a uh, professor at Cal State L.A., Uh, John in Fullerton emailed us and says, the chancellor makes a million dollars per year. All administrators gave themselves a 16% raise, yet they have the audacity to raise tuition substantially over the next five years and lowball us with an insulting offer that is far less than inflation. That was a criticism that I've also seen on this, that uh, the increases don't really track with inflation. That was John in Fullerton writing in. Luke is calling us from Long Beach. Luke, you are a lecturer at CSU Long Beach. Uh, How do you plan to vote next week? I'm going to vote now. I am uh, share, I think, a viewpoint with many of uh, my fellow faculty um, and union members here that we just feel extremely let down by the bargaining team. in particular, the way that this uh, the way that this uh, deal is actually being uh, conveyed, we actually are achieving way way less than is actually advertised. All of the uh, social justice gains, such as um, you know increased uh, representation uh, for the, uh, when you're dealing with the police and um, 
all of like the student counselor ratio, um, none of this is actually actionable in any way. Uh, in particular, there's a there's a crisis involving a student uh, service actu actually uh, students being able to access counselors um, and in the current uh, language of the TA, they wouldn't actually even be able to the CSU wouldn't even have to report on uh, what's going on with that until 2026. Most importantly, the TA locks us out of bargaining until 2025, so we have to be okay with these gains. If you actually look at the salary tables of how people's salaries are affected by this, it pushes more people to the floor. Yes, some people do get a pay increase, but people who have been working for a while, especially still among the lowest paid lecturers, they, their pay actually is going down relative to their colleagues. So it's almost like um, if you've been working here for a number of years, effectively your four or five years of service or whatever are effectively getting nullified. And that's uh, to me, that's that's very misleading that they don't that they uh, don't mention that. A number of points from Luke in Long Beach who plans to vote no. Christy emailed us. She says, I'm CSU faculty at CSU Pomona. The deal isn't perfect. But I'm voting yes on it. It has a reopener provision to renegotiate in a year. If we vote it down, we could lose the good things it does offer. Of course, she's urging union members to be a yes vote. I want to come back to Julia Barajas, our community colleges reporter. Julia, you've been listening in. Is there anything that stands out to you from what you've heard in this uh, conversation based off of your reporting as well? The two things that uh, you and um, one of the callers mentioned is like there is a lot of criticism of the of, of, like Chancellor Mildred Garcia and also the um, CSU presidents. Um, the you know like the discrepancy between I think like what they earn and what the people who are in the classrooms and yeah, in the she libraries. got a twenty seven percent pay bump, right? Right, right, and like and that was last year, right? So it wasn't like oh a while back. That was last year, and they they do question why like that that's okay. Um, but that when they ask for uh, for like a, an increase to keep up with the pace of inflation, um, it can't like the CSU says, like, well, we can't afford it. So there's that. Um, and I think they uh, the faculty I've spoken to, like they they need to say that like, you know we understand that there's a lot more of us. There are 29,000 of us versus like a couple like 23 campuses and one chancellor. So there's you know less people. But I think it's more like the like the morale behind it. Um, that decision making. And then also definitely another critique that I've heard from uh, faculty is that, you know, they do a lot of work to um, support the mental health of their students, but that that's not their role. Right. And so they, they had, they did bargain. They wanted more um, counselors for their students. And um, the tentative agreement does talk about, it acknowledges the importance of moving all campus to a 1500 to one student to counselor ratio, but it's not, it's more like a, it's not a concrete commitment. It's more like a, an aspirational goal. Yeah, you, you describe it as squishier, uh, under the squishier <laughs> category on your article on LAS.com right now. And 1,500 to 1, um, that sounds like a lot of students for just one counselor. Really quickly before I let you go, Julia, I just want to ask uh, about the concern that one of the callers brought up about these raises being contingent on state funding. I know that you spoke to a few uh, experts on the subject of collective bargaining um, what was the overall take on these uh, raises hinging on funding? Do they get the sense that maybe uh, Governor Newsom, considering our deficit that we're currently looking at right now, would not uh, end up making cuts to the CSU system? What are they thinking about the chances of those 5% raises actually happening? I, I, yes, so we did go. We did reach out to um, collective bargaining professors and other um, experts in uh, collective bargaining, and what they say is that they feel that Newsom has been pretty supportive of higher education, so they don't 
like they, they think there's there's risk, but it's not a huge gamble. Um, but I will say that we, we did reach out to um, Governor Newsom's office and also to um, the state legislature, and um, we didn't get any kind of committed um, response about the budget. So there, there is some risk involved. That is Elias' very own Julia Barajas, who's been covering the CSU strike and now the vote, which is happening next week. Julia, thank you so much for coming on this morning. Of course. Thank you very much. And of course, thank you to our Elias listeners for calling in, all you Cal State uh, faculty members who called in with your opinions. You you make this show happen. I really appreciate you. This is AirTalk. I'm Austin Cross. On a Friday, as always, we are on air. We're live streaming on Instagram at Official, where you can join the conversation and get a peek inside the studio. When we come back, we are going to get a deep look at the deep and, and dark roots of how our immigration system at the southern border ended up the way that it is today. New Yorker staff writer Jonathan Blitzer is with us. He's got a new book about it. We're talking about it. 60 seconds. Stick around. Support for LAist comes from FX's Shogun. Set in Japan in the year 1600, Lord Yoshi Torunaga is fighting for his life as his enemies unite against him. When a mysterious European ship is found marooned in a nearby fishing village, its English pilot, John Blackthorne, comes bearing secrets that could tip the balance of power. Starring Hiroyuki Sanada, Cosmo Jarvis, and Anna Sawai, Shogun is available for your Emmy consideration at fxnetworks.com fyc. Support comes from Rancho La Puerta, a wellness resort just 45 minutes from downtown San Diego. Three, four, and seven-night retreat packages include fitness classes, hiking, live music, mindfulness, and culinary adventures featuring fruits and veggies straight off the vine. Special rates and offers are available for summer stays and first-time guests. Savor summer at Rancho La Puerta. RanchoLaPuerta.com It's Air Talk here on LAist 89.3 and live streaming on Instagram at LAist Official, L-A-I-S-T Official, where you can join the conversation. I'm Austin Cross with you, as always, on a Friday. You know, the crisis at the southern border, it is top of mind for many American voters this election year. Thousands of migrants arrive every day, often seeking asylum. This week, there is the faintest glimmer of hope that meaningful steps could be taken to start solving the crisis when, after months of talks, senators unveiled a bipartisan bill to address border security. Now, it would have, among other things, allowed President Biden to shut down the border once the number of migrants approaching it hit a specific threshold. But political watchers and sigh, let's face it, public radio listeners like you already knew it had a snowball's chance of going anywhere in Congress. Plus, it doesn't really begin to address some of the deeper issues at play here. So my next guest has long maintained that in order to make any meaningful changes at the border, Congress needs to step in. He is a staff writer at The New Yorker. His new book is titled, Everyone Who Is Gone Is Here, The United States, Central America, and the Making of a Crisis. It offers a long view of the issue of immigration in the U.S., how it ultimately became a crisis, and how the conversation has shifted in recent years from migrants entering the U.S. from Mexico to those entering from countries in Central America, like Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador. Jonathan Blitzer is the author of the book. He's with me now. Jonathan Blitzer, thanks so much for coming on today. 
Thanks for having me. I mean, as I was reading your book, I noticed the subtle shift in the conversation and uh, really the dialogue about immigration at the southern border over, say, the past 20 years. As the people crossing shifted from being, say, Mexican males who were looking for work to Central Americans, uh, unaccompanied minors, when did we start to see this transition happen? Yeah, it's a good question because it, it seemed to happen almost overnight to people who were following the story from the American side of things, keeping their eye on Washington and so on. It, it seemed very sudden in the spring and summer of 2014 when tens of thousands of children and families from Central America started arriving at the southern border seeking asylum. And as you say, this was a major shift from what authorities had seen in the past. Typically, the United States government was handling you know, single Mexican adults crossing the border to look for work. Um, there was all sorts of circular migration that played out along those lines. It was relatively easy for the, the government to kind of handle that population at the border. What happens in 2014 is that when people start to arrive seeking asylum, the United States government has the legal obligation to hear each and every asylum claim. Uh, and so suddenly there is this administrative problem because the numbers are really high. Uh, the numbers of people who are arriving are really high. Their, their, their needs are urgent and acute. And the system isn't really equipped to deal with the kind of level and scale of uh, people seeking asylum at that moment in time. And the politics, of course, spiral out from there. But part of the idea of the book is to understand how that moment in 2014, the legacy of which we continue to live with right now quite directly, uh, how that story really began earlier, how, you know, to one degree, maybe it seems sudden or surprising that there's a border emergency in 2014. But in fact, that story, as I try to tell it in the book, started in 1980. Uh, and there are kind of key plot points and the characters in this book live through this story, through the 1980s, through the 1990s, the early 2000s. And you, you'll see as a reader kind of how this all built and kind of crescendo to that moment in 2014. You know, being in public radio and, you know, journalism as long as I have, obviously this is a history that I, I knew somewhat. Reading mm -hmm. your book really uh, opened my eyes up to and gave me a deeper understanding of, say, how much American efforts to, you know, prevent the flow of communism in South America, South and Central America, really laid the groundwork for the crises that we're seeing today. So you start to tell these stories. You give us this context through the lives of individuals. And I want to ask about a few of them. One is Juan Romagosa in El Salvador. For starters, why did you choose him as a character? Yeah, I'm glad you asked about him because he's truly one of the most incredible, striking people I've, I've ever met uh, in my life in general, but especially in my life as a journalist. Juan um, first came on my radar uh, in the early 2000s. Um, when there was a human rights case going on in a civil court in Florida, uh, where two Salvadoran generals who had been American allies during the Cold War, who were on trial, essentially, for having committed war crimes, uh, were actually facing a jury in Florida. And the lead plaintiff in that case was Juan. So Juan's story, as I tell it, begins in 1980. He was kidnapped and brutally tortured by the Salvadoran mm. National Guard. There was a civil war going on in El Salvador from 1980 to 1992. Right. The U.S. intervened uh, in on the side of the, the Salvadoran military. Uh, and basically anyone who was thought to have leftist ties or sympathies came under uh, intense scrutiny 
and in many cases were brutalized, tortured, killed. Quan, who was a doctor at the time, uh, was tortured and his torturers deliberately tried to incapacitate him. Right. And so they cut nerves in his hand. They made it so that he couldn't practice medicine again. Eventually he escapes, makes it to Mexico. As he's recuperating in Mexico, manages to actually get involved in a wider church-based activist movement to move Guatemalan refugees through Mexico to the United States because simultaneously there was a Guatemalan civil war that ran from the 1960s to the 1990s. Juan is involved in that element of humanitarian relief and eventually comes to the United States, uh, becomes a, a kind of key community activist and public health leader, first on the West Coast, briefly in LA, but mostly in San Francisco, and then eventually in Washington, DC. And so his story has this incredible arc. I mean, he, he really right. quite literally embodies this whole history. Talking right now with Jonathan Blitzer. He's a staff writer at The New Yorker. He's also author of the new book, Everyone Who Is Gone Is Here, The United States, Central America, and the Making of a Crisis. You mentioned what was happening in El Salvador at the time in the early 1980s. For me, I couldn't help but think, gee, you know, you wouldn't, you'd think America would have learned its lesson in Vietnam, you know, about what it means to, uh, you know, try to stop the spread of communism somewhere and, and just how much damage can happen to a civilian population as a result. But could you just give us a little bit more detail? Obviously, Juan's story was uh, horrendous, but just about who the people were that you, the United States was backing and uh, what role the Reagan administration played in this at the time. Yeah, you know, there was an expression at the time uh, that El Salvador is Spanish for Vietnam. Oh. Uh, and so, you know, the idea was uh, that the United States had to intervene in foreign government's affairs to limit or stop the spread of leftism. Um, and there was intense concern in Washington that socialism was on the rise in Latin America. Uh, it began in the late 1950s with the Cuban Revolution. It continued through uh, the revolution in Nicaragua. Um, and there was kind of this intense focus on making sure that, you know, leftist guerrillas who were warring with, you know, by and large, highly repressive military regimes in Central America, that those leftist movements were quelled. And so what the United States government did, especially in El Salvador, was they gave money, uh, weapons, military advisors to the Salvadoran military. Uh, all the while looking the other way when evidence surfaced of wholesale abuses and, and atrocities committed by the military. In some cases, even Americans were, more, were tortured and killed in El Salvador. And their own government, the United States government, more or less looked the other way because it had these geopolitical concerns. And so what's striking about the duration of the Salvadoran Civil War, which is brutal in so many ways, you know, it lasts 12 years. The Salvadoran uh, government and military, for all of the resources they were getting from the United States, still fought the leftist guerrillas to a stalemate. And so essentially, the United States, by 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 weighing in on the side of the, the military, drew that war out for many more years than it probably would have lasted otherwise. And over the course of that period, something like 75,000 civilians were killed. And, it you know, to talk about this with you especially... Is meaningful to me and i'm sure to a lot of your listeners because you know california became this huge right. hub for salvadorans who fled the war 
and arrived in the United States. And at a certain point, a quarter of El Salvador had moved to the United States during these war years. I mean, I should mention one of our producers, Manny Valladares, uh, chimed in. He says, my dad actually immigrated to the U.S. in his 20s following the Salvadorian Civil War. He had a couple countries he was considering. He ultimately came to L.A. due in part to its growing number of Salvadorian refugees um, in South Central. Uh, At one point, Jonathan, almost a quarter of El Salvador's population would end up living in the U.S., right? Yeah, I mean it's 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 overwhelming, and this is this is where you see American foreign policy and American immigration policy kind of collide, because you know American commitments abroad actually in this case created a new demographic. It it, it uprooted hundreds of thousands of people who came to the United States, and of course they come to the United States, they establish ties in the United States, uh, their families and lives grow, and it, you know the thing that struck me in reporting this stuff out is you start to see how entwined these worlds are. And so, you know, the kind of themes in American politics and in American political life tend to revolve around, okay, let's assert our toughness at the border, or let's prosecute this sort of broader geopolitical agenda. And and the premise in all of those efforts is to try to sort of pull the region apart and, and to create a real strict delineation between where the US stands and where these other countries in the region stand. Um, but in fact, the irony, the kind of profound irony in all of it is the harder the U.S. government tried to kind of police that divide, the more entwined these worlds became. Now, let's stick with this theme of intertwined. But let me first reintroduce to you talking right now with Jonathan Blitzer, a New Yorker staff writer, also author of the new book, Everyone Who Is Gone Is Here, The United States, Central America, and the Making of a Crisis. Another story that you feature actually has a South L.A. connection, very relevant for people here. That's Eddie Anzora, and he found himself essentially caught between two very 1980s U.S. policies, both anti-gang policing and this counterinsurgency in El Salvador. Could you tell us what happened to Eddie? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Eddie was born in El Salvador. He comes to the United States when he's three years old, 1980. Um, with his mother and brother at the time. And like so many Salvadoran uh, you know, refugees at that moment in time, arrives in South Central Los Angeles. Uh, and, and the dynamic in South Central Los Angeles at the time, this is in the early 1980s, is, is, a, is a pretty interesting, complex one. You know, the Salvadorans at that moment in time are the newcomers. And so there's a pretty kind of vicious inner city racial hierarchy where there are black street gangs, Mexican street gangs, the Salvadorans are new on the scene and in the kind of classic fashion are, you know, exposed and and, 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 and and weak in this context and are often the victims of all sorts of violence. And so over time, some Salvadoran youth in the inner city start to create their own groups essentially as a form of self-defense. And over time, those groups get increasingly violent and aggressive in their own right. And, and, and now, you know, listeners will know groups like MS-13 Uh, or the 18th Street Gang, Uh, these gangs actually began on the streets of Los Angeles. And so Eddie was never involved in those gangs, but he grew up uh, in the neighborhoods where those gangs were beginning to take root. And so he saw in his earliest days uh, what this started to look like, kind of the world of El Salvador running straight into the world of inner city South Central. Um, And over the arc of his life, as I tell it in the book, he eventually... Um, because of this collision of American politics and American foreign policy, gets tied up. He and his family had green cards. 
Uh, but there was a law, a draconian anti-immigration law passed by the Clinton administration in 1996, uh, very much playing on this idea of that administration's toughness on crime. It was an election year. They were looking to kind of yoke these issues of toughness on immigration and toughness on crime. And they were trying to outflank Republicans by showing that they too could be tough on this. Um, and so they passed this law that, among many other things, basically said that you could retroactively lose your green card, lose your legal status if you were convicted of any number of crimes that they defined as basically being aggravated felonies. And so some of those were pretty minor crimes. Others were more serious. Eddie's fell kind of on the milder end of things. It was a drug possession charge. And he lost his green card and eventually gets deported to El Salvador when he's nearly 30 years old. Talking right now with Jonathan Blitzer, author of Everyone Who Is Gone Is Here. So you spoke about Clinton administration, kind of this push to show that, you know, they could also be tough on crime. I want to ask about immigration reform, specifically the last major reform passed by Congress happened, oh, I'm trying to do the math in my head, over 34 years ago at this point. Is it fair to say in your view that the politics of the border, the images that we often uh, see on television, uh, obviously there's one this week that's gone viral uh, regarding some migrants in New York City and some police officers. But is it safe to say that the politics around something like that, even a video, which I believe that video has already been harnessed for a political ad, um, makes it difficult to talk about logical solutions to what's happening there? You know, following this stuff, I'm certainly not alone in this. I feel overwhelmed, quite frankly, because you're seeing a vicious circle here. Um, there is not the political will to wrestle with comprehensive immigration reform in any meaningful sense in Washington. That's been the case for decades now. Um, immigration reform on a good day is a complicated tangle to, to, to work out in Washington because of all of the different constituencies involved, because of how toxic the issue of immigration tends to be, of how it's gotten weaponized politically and so on. Um, but one of the things most recently, I would say over the last 10 years or so, that kind of keeps coming up is this idea that, and, and to be frank about it, it's it's Republicans saying this, um, you know, we can't reform the system until we deal with the border. Now, this is a kind of contradiction in terms, because one of the reasons why you're seeing the situation at the border seem to get out of control is because the system, the immigration system as a whole, hasn't been modernized since 1990. And so what that means for people is the world has obviously changed a thousand times over since 1990. Um, and there are people there, you know, there are job needs all across the United States. There are people in the wider region who are fleeing all sorts of things. We're in a moment of, of real mass migration, um, the likes of which we haven't seen since the Second World War. If the government were able, through legislation, to create other legal avenues for people to come to the United States, to work, to reunite with family, and to go to school, any of these things, it would certainly lessen the pressure at the border. But because there's such a logjam on comprehensive immigration reform, the pressure point has shifted to the southern border, where the asylum system, which was never meant to deal with the kinds of volume of people it's now dealing with, is really the only avenue people have for trying to enter the United States. So people are fleeing you know, toward safety and opportunity. And the only door that's been open to them is this kind of rickety this this rickety door of the asylum system that 
you know, keeps getting shut in their face. And so you have this kind of repetition of the problem that lawmakers in Washington say, well, we can't pass comprehensive reform because the border's chaotic. But the border's chaotic because lawmakers in Washington can't pass comprehensive reform. And, and you've touched on this a bit, but I want to drill down on the asylum system, how it was never really designed for the situation that we're looking at today. What's the criteria for an asylum case that would uh, be accepted? And then what was the policy that was developed, I believe it was over 40 years ago, when it came to our asylum law? Yeah. I, so, you know, the book starts in 1980 for two reasons. One, because it kind of sets us up in the kind of Cold War environment of Central America, but also because in 1980, the U.S. passed the Refugee Act, which was the first time that the government had codified in an American statute the refugee and asylum policy uh, that basically says, um, you know, anyone who arrives at the United States or or is seeking to come to the United States who is persecuted based on their identity, and there are a few very specific forms of identity-based persecution that this statute lays out, the U.S. government, in accordance with international human rights and immigration law, uh, owes people a chance to make that claim for protection, and the U.S. government, in turn, um, if someone qualifies, needs to extend them that protection. So right from the earliest days of the passage of that law, you began to see American politics interfering with the promise of what that law was supposed to do. So to begin with, Cold War thing, um, during the 1980s, you had large numbers of Salvadorans and Guatemalans showing up at the southern border seeking asylum. The U.S. government at that time, on the whole, would grant asylum at a rate of roughly 20%. For those coming from El Salvador and Guatemala, they were rejected at a rate of 98 and 99%. Mm. So the, the grant rates for those populations were minuscule. And the reason for that was because the U.S. government couldn't acknowledge that these people were fleeing repression at the hands of the governments there because those governments were American allies in the Cold War. Right. So from the very beginning, you see the asylum system kind of getting manipulated. Over time, what that looks like you know, into the 90s and early 2000s is just kind of your classic Washington inattention to the needs of an asylum system. So the system is starved of resources, it's starved of staffing. And because of the general dynamics at the southern border, where mo the highest volume of people showing up, as you and I talked about, were primarily, you know, Mexican adults looking for work, there was never such an acute need to really overhaul the system or, or, or improve its resources. And so then fast forward to 2014, when all of a sudden you have this influx of Central Americans arriving seeking relief. The system isn't built for that. Um, and since then, the population that showed up at the southern border has expanded. And so now, you know, my book deals with essentially the last 10 years of history, when Central Americans were the kind of majority of people showing up at the southern border. Jonathan Blitzer, I want to get in really quickly. I want to get in about two oh, more questions while I've got you right now, because you've got so much yeah. good stuff. But I want to bring it up to present date right now. Just to briefly yeah. go through what we saw in the Trump administration, we saw the invoking of Title 42 that allowed the U.S. to expel migrants, sent about 70,000 people to Mexico while they waited for their asylum hearings. Of course, there was child separation. Um, and immigration advisor Stephen Miller later said, quote, we need to be smarter if we want to implement something on this scale again. Uh, really briefly, because I want to get in one other question with you, too, but what do you think a second Trump administration would mean for border policy? Well, I have to say the first the first Trump administration was pretty successful in sabotaging asylum as we know it. Uh, and so I think it's fair to say that, you know, if we haven't already seen the end of asylum because of the wreckage of what the current administration has inherited from Trump, you're going to see, you know, the 
the, the a, a real dismantling of any and all forms of protection for those showing up at the southern border and increasingly brutal and harsh policies at the border meted out to those who arrive. I want to ask looking forward, obviously Congress would need to act. We saw an attempt to act this week. In some ways, you would think that the legislation that they were considering would favor conservative viewpoints much more than democratic viewpoints. And yet it still had a snowball's chance of going anywhere. What, based off of your research, based off of your reporting, the work that you put into this book, what would a successful border policy start to look like? What are maybe some of the pieces that could start to fix the broken system? I would say there are two broad categories of how I think about this. The first are more technocratic things that will will sound, I'm sure, to your listeners like kind of minuscule given the magnitude of the problem at the border, but they do matter. So I'm talking about things like, you know, streamlining the asylum process so that rather than having cases go to immigration judges in a court system that's badly backlogged, you could have people who are called asylum officers at the Department of Homeland Security who are specialize in these issues, processing people's claims from start to finish. Um, you could have more immigration judges. This would just be as simple as a matter of authorizing the funding to do this, to hire more people. Um, you know, these are small things that would be fiddling around the margin, to be sure, but they would help, and Congress has blocked them. The second broad category of thing I would say is that the border, the, the, the key to, to managing the border is actually not at the border per se. It's recognizing the fact that large numbers of people are coming to the United States. And to the degree that the U.S. government can anticipate that, and rather than process those people in the worst place possible, which is at the southern border, build out ways of processing people's claims and dealing with their interest in coming to the United States in their home region. So the Biden administration has begun to play with this a little bit. They're blocked by Congress, and so they've had to use a very narrow executive authority called parole to essentially say to people from Haiti, Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua, if you uh, apply to come to the United States, we will parole you into the country as long as you just don't show up at the southern border and try to cross it. Um, that it, it covers a population of about 30,000 people a month, significant population. But that's the kind of idea that we need to see on a larger scale. So, you know, the U.S. working with regional governments to create processing centers in the regions so that people can begin to manage this journey to the United States before they reach the southern border. If American policy only deals with the situation at the southern border, it's far too late. Jonathan Blitzer is a staff writer at The New Yorker. His new book is out now. It is titled Everyone Who Is Gone Is Here, The United States, Central America, and the Making of a Crisis. Jonathan Blitzer, thank you so much for making the time today. Thanks for having me. This is Air Talk on a Friday. I'm Austin Cross. In about 90 seconds, we are going to dig into some Gusto bread. Gusto bread in Long Beach. They are a uh, James Beard nominee for Outstanding Bakery. We've got some baked goods in front of us. LAIST official, LAIST official on Instagram is where you can go to see it as we talk with the owner of Gusto Bread, and we try some of these incredible-looking treats. Back in 90 seconds on AirTalk. 
Support for LAist comes from FX's The Bear. Season two of the Emmy-winning comedy follows Carmi, Sidney, Richie, and the rest of the crew as they work to transform their grimy sandwich joint into a next-level spot. It turns out the only thing harder than running a restaurant is opening a new one. Starring Jeremy Allen White, Io Idebury, and Eben Moss Backrack. Television Academy members can watch all episodes of The Bear at fxnetworks.com FYC. Support comes from Rancho La Puerta, a health resort with 84 years of wellness experience providing summer vacations centered on mindfulness and well-being. Activities include sunrise hikes, water classes, yoga, and spa therapies, all set in a backdrop of a dreamy summer sky. A six-acre organic garden provides fresh fruits and vegetables daily. Learn more at RanchoLaPuerta.com. It's Air Talk. Here on LAS 89.3, live streaming right now on Instagram at LAS Official, where you can see inside the studio, and I've got the bread cam <laughs> happening right now. I'm going to name it the bread cam. We've got a close-up on some really incredible-looking treats, courtesy of Gusto Bread. That's a spot in Long Beach. They are a James Beard Award finalist for Outstanding Bakery. Joining me now, baker and founder of Gusto Bread Bakery, Arturo and CISO Arturo, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. I'm going to dig into some of these treats in just a second, but I want to learn a little bit more about you because you're somewhat of a newcomer to baking. You started around 2013 with a wood-fired oven in your backyard. You named it, I think, Emmy Lou. Could you tell me about how your interest turned into a full-blown business? Yes. Um, you know, that I think that oven, it was an earthen oven made out of cob, which is the material of uh, sand, mud, and straw. Um, so it was this really ancient looking oven and it just really drew my attention. I, I really he made it a point to just want to learn how to bake and use that oven. And, and it just, it just really drew me in and, and I just, um, you know, I just didn't stop baking since since the first time I, I fired the oven and and uh, tried some recipes and I just was was hooked or destined to become a baker, I guess. <laughs> I love it. I mean, so you moved to a home a couple you know, a couple of years later, 2017, started a cottage bakery. Then in August of 2020, you opened your shop. Can I just ask, not a lot of people open shops during the pandemic. What was that like? Uh, you know, I think in 20, from 2017, you know, pre-pandemic, we had, like you said, I, as you learned, uh, we're baking out of our home. I started a cottage business. So that was after this oven emilu, and, and I had already um, had interest in my bread with some local cafes and stuff. So, so that was nice. We were delivering to homes. Um, we were doing, attending a farmer's market, um, delivering to local cafes. So we were already kind of building this recognition in the Long Beach community and, you know, being a community supported baker, um, we set out to build the bake and, and thankfully we started uh, pre-pandemic 2019. I think we started a lot of construction and then, um, yeah, so then when it was, you know, like peak pandemic around August 2020, we opened our doors and, you know, there's a big, uh, there's a necessity for bread, you know, people who were wanted uh soup grocery stores were either out of bread or, or the lines were in, insane so 
So people, you know, uh, supported us through that. And I'm really grateful for that. So there was a need. I want to remind people right now, uh, live streaming on Instagram, LAist Official, we've got the bread cam. And I have a close-up right now on the Nixtamal Queen, which I found so fascinating, Arturo. And I'm going to try it in a second. But as I try it, I want to ask you about the nixtamalization process, which I ended up looking up. And it's a way to take traditional maize uh and I've never actually heard of it being used in a pastry before. Could you just tell me a little bit about that, why you chose to do that? Yeah, when when I was uh, at the Cottage Bakery um, around 2018 or so, I was um, testing new new things, new ideas, and I was learning to make mm. uh, masa out of corn. So I learned to wow. make some lights corn, which is when you cook corn in an alkaline solution and when you grind it it turns into a dough so i was really fascinated by that as a baker it being a dough and you know it's something i grew up with you know corn tortillas my family's mexican so so um i just was in a way i was just uh, learning more about my heritage and and like the foods that i grew up eating and incorporating them into my menu somehow so when i learned to nix some lies i just put two and two together i said hey, well i'm going to use this dough and put it in some bread dough and see how it tastes. And it was, it was phenomenal. So I, from then I just got ideas for, you know, a pastry application. You know, I, so I just, I just tried it and it's really incredible. It's unlike anything I've tasted before. Uh, and I was so excited to try it for people who cannot see it. It's almost got like a four leaf clover sort of look about it. It's got a design on the top. Uh, and you make this with a sourdough starter, right? Mm-hmm. Correct. Um, yes. Um, so, so uh, traditionally, there, it's 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 there's this pastry called the Queen of Mon, which comes from Brittany, France, and it uh, traditionally it's a very large like cake size, maybe wow. like about nine or ten inch cake, and it has a similar look to that to what you're eating there, like our next small queen, um, and it's a baker's pastry. So what bakers used to do. They would get a bread dough and pound butter and sugar into it, just very rustic, and form it together and then bake it right away so it would caramelize. So I took that idea, you know, with, with the masa that we make with our sourdough bread dough. And, yeah, that's how we got the nixmo. Uh, but we honestly, made it more. It was so unique. Perfect. And what's the fruit in the center? I got a fruit there. Oh, no, it's not fruit. So that's more of the masa dough. That's that masa we put in dough. The yeah, so wow. I know it's very cool. It's like aromatic. It um, is. Yeah. Wow. Got Some, like... Somebody on our Instagram already says, definitely heading to Gusto this weekend. Uh, yeah, that's a good bet. Um, you know what, Arturo? I only have time for one more of these four treats in front of me. If you were to suggest one more that we try right now, there's the Media Lunas, the uh, Alfajor de Nuez, there's the Concha. What would you recommend that we try next? Um, I would recommend the... Uh, I want to. I'm torn, but I would say the concha maybe. <laughs> okay. Um, so yeah, I would we're... say the concha because that's a it's it's something very unique to our shop as well. It's also using a sourdough. Sourdough is you know when I say sourdough, I think there's a lot of confusion around it. It's it's a type of it's a fermentation technique. So, but you know people typically associate it with a, a bread, but it's it's just fermentation. So so we use the fermentation technique to our concha. Mm. And so it's a naturally fermented concha. It's a concha de cacao. I, I don't think I've ever tasted a concha like this. I know it's rude to talk with food in your mouth, but I got to I gotta also talk to you. Um, how popular are these uh, during holiday seasons, of course, 
I know that you make, I think I read that you make uh, a certain bread for Dia de los Muertos as well. Um, mm -hmm. Are these all with your sourdough starter? Yeah, that's our focus here. That's kind of how, when I learned to bake, that was um, something I was very passionate about. And so I, you know, mm. continued that through, through the years. And that's something we try to uh, utilize in our bakery all the time for any product we make so that it's it's digestible and you know the grains are fermented um arturo yeah, so i gotta reintroduce mm -hmm. you arturo inciso founder baker gusto bread bakery james beard award finalist for outstanding bakery truly outstanding next time uh, arturo if and maybe when you win you got to come back and we got to try one of these chocolate lattes as well i think it would go perfectly with this i'm austin cross uh this is air talk on a Friday, you just heard Food Friday, which is always just so fun. We're back with you next week. Have a great day. Support for LAist comes from FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Callista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. Emmy eligible in all limited series categories. Television Academy members can watch all episodes at fxnetworks.com FYC. Support comes from Rancho La Puerta, a health and wellness resort just 45 minutes from San Diego, recently voted a top international destination spa by readers of Travel and Leisure magazine. Summer retreat packages of three, four, or seven nights include hiking, water classes, mindfulness, spa therapies, and culinary adventures with farm-fresh ingredients. Learn more at RanchoLaPuerta.com. It's Film Week on L.A. is 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us with critics this week, Tim Cogshell of Alt Film Guide and Synagogues.com. Peter Rayner is film critic for the Christian Science Monitor, and they're just two of the 11 critics who share the stage with me at the historic Orpheum Theater in downtown Los Angeles on Sunday afternoon, March 3rd, just a week in advance of the Oscars. It's our 22nd annual Film Week Academy Awards preview. We sure hope you join us. We'll have clips of all of the best film nominees, and we'll be talking about the major categories and hearing our critics go at it over what they think should be honored and what they think was excluded. That's March 3rd, Sunday afternoon. You can get your tickets at com slash events. We hope to see you there. We begin with this week's release of the French period film set in the late 1880s, The Taste of Things. We actually reviewed this earlier, back with its Oscar qualifying run toward the end of last year. It's now out in a wider release, including at Lemley's Royal Theater in West L.A. The film stars Juliette Binoche and Benoit Majimel. It's written and directed by Tran An Hung, who did The Scent of Green Papaya. Peter, please start us on The Taste of Things. Uh, this is a terrific movie. Uh, yeah, it's set in 1885. It opens with this culinary flourish. The the uh, the head cook of this famed Loire chateau, played by Juliette Binoche, is, is um, swinging between kettles and saucepans and stovetops and basins. And you know you're seeing her putting this great potpourri of delicacies together. 
And it goes on for like 15 or 20 minutes, it seems. To start the film. And, yeah, no, and I'm saying to myself, if, if the whole movie's like this, I'm never going to get through it, <laughs> you know. But uh, it, it, to its credit, this is not, I mean, there's a lot of food in this movie and it's scrumptious, but it's not a foodie movie. It, it's it's really a, a, a very deep and, and, and touching romance. Uh, uh, Binoche is, has been the... Uh, the cook in this uh, Loire Chateau for for twenty years, and this this famed uh, 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 culinary expert uh, Benoit Magimel is 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 her boss, but also sometime lover, uh, and they share separate bedrooms, and she occasionally lets him into hers, and you know it's all very, but she would rather be his his cook than his wife. I mean, he's constantly asking her to marry him. Um, but she feels that would be sort of a come down because you know she really uh, thinks that food is, is is above everything else. It's it's a it's a wonderful movie. Uh, the two actors, who by the way in real life were a couple and share a daughter, um, they're playing a couple in this film, although they're no longer together. So interesting. So that's an interesting little uh, subplot to the plot. Um, uh, but it's 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 a marvelous. It looks marvelous. It's some of the imagery is is derived, you know, not self consciously from from Corbet and Renoir. And um, uh, and it, it has one of the most romantic moments I think I've ever seen in a movie where, you know, she has these fainting spells that come more serious. And finally, he's, he, he wants to cook for her. Mm. And then he asks, you know, can I watch you eat it? And she says yes. And it's just marvelous. The Taste of Things, uh, unrated French film, and it's France's official submission for the Oscar uh, consideration. One best director at last year's Cannes Film Festival. Tim, what do you think of The Taste of Things? Exquisite, just an exquisite movie. And watching this movie, one can't help but slip into thoughts about so many beautiful movies around and about food, like Water for Chocolate, uh, 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 Eat, Drink, Man, Woman. Babette's Feast was the one that kept popping into my head as I watched this. I still see are preparing the quail. <laughs> oh, it's Fred Wiseman's Menu Plaisir, which was snubbed by the Oscars this year for Best Documentary, mm. will be on PBS in March. It's a great movie about a three-star French restaurant. That's another one. Uh, f- a fly on the wall. This is beautiful, and that story in between. Yes, yes, uh, she's, she's, she's the cook, but he's the chef. And, and she knows that to become his wife would, in fact, diminish her within the realm that they work in, but in his eyes, too. And that's the thing that we're watching, that scene where they have the young student, a young girl comes there who wants to take up as an apprentice there, and she has to taste things. It's a 10-minute scene. And everything that she tastes, she has to tell him what she tastes, what the flavors are. It's just beautiful, beautifully done. So, so it's just a lovely, lovely movie, and I'm really kind of surprised it's not nominated for an Academy Award. Yeah. Fascinating that it's adapted from a novel written in 1961. I mean, this goes way back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the French uh, Oscar nominee uh, for for foreign uh, for uh, international feature, but didn't make uh, the didn't top make it. five. I mean, it, it's yeah. a good. It's on the short list, but yeah, it's a good short list, but. Still should have been on it. The Taste of Things is unrated. You can see it, as I said earlier, Lemley's Royal Theater in West L.A. next Wednesday on Valentine's Day. Appropriately, it goes into wider release. Bob Marley, One Love, a biopic starring Kingsley Ben-Adir. It's directed by Ronaldo Marcus Green and written by five credited, I'm sorry, four credited screenwriters mm. led by Terrence Winter. Tim, what do you think of Bob Marley, One Love? That's too, that's too, too many. 
Two too many? <laughs> you can't have more than two. I'm sorry. Things go awry. Two screenwriters, Matt. That's <laughs> things your rule. Si- things go sideways when you go the other way. An almost cradled grave story, which is not that difficult to go, considering Bob Marley died so young, young uh, yeah. May of uh, 1981, only 36 years old, uh, when, when he left us. Uh, uh, this is fine, serviceable, well-performed, highly performed, I might say. Everyone here is working real hard to be authentic, authentically Jamaican, to get that patois right. And you can sometimes see the work. Uh, including including Kingsley, uh, there. But 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 it's but it's fine, and it is a near cradle grave story. Although we spend a good amount of time in that period in 1976 around an assassination attempt of Bob Marley. A lot of people don't know that that uh, there was a very serious assassination attempt made on his life in December of 1976. Several people were shot. His wife, his manager, he was shot. Not nobody was killed. Uh, several people were injured terribly. Uh, it was a couple of days before this big concert that he was going to do, this sort of peace and reconciliation concert, and and uh, the shooters were never captured, although it was considered probably a political shooting because of Bob Marley's leaning toward Michael Manley. And, and the concert did go on. It's very interesting. Uh, the band uh, that played with him at that concert was not his band. That was not the Whalers. That was another reggae band because the Whalers went into hiding, Bunny and Peter Tosh and all those guys, and we didn't see them. And after that, Bob, and as depicted in this movie, Exiles and to London where he makes his seminal records, Exodus and all that amazing stuff. To be honest with you, I did not come to Bob Marley until late. Bob had been around 15, 20 years before the the late 70s, early 80s, right before he passes. And that's when I sort of came to Bob Marley, that extraordinary album. This film, this film suffers from a couple of things. I went to, I saw this film in the biggest possible way you can see a film at the premiere. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In Westwood, just, just, just the other night. Cheering, he, cheering the, audience, the whole, the whole thing. thing. And I'm watching this movie, and I'm appreciating the scale, and it's well made. Ronaldo, Marcus Green, uh, King Richard, and all of that. But somehow I'm like, I'm sorry, this is not a big theatrical. This is not. It's not the same thing that happened when I saw Jamie Foxx portray Ray, Ray Charles. Yeah. That moment. Jamie Foxx was a TV star, not a movie star. And that made him a movie star, that portrayal of Ray. This isn't going to, it's, it's not. One thing, and it's not his fault, this guy's too good looking. He's too good looking. Bob Marley was an, he was an everyday guy. He looked like he had terrible teeth. His eyes were always yellow from smoking weed. If you've ever seen, and, and, this, and this, this guy is just gorgeous on this screen and he's doing this patois and I'm like, no. We're talking about Bob Marley, One Love, the biopic from director Ronaldo Marcus Green, starring Kingsley Ben-Adir. It's rated PG-13 in wide release. Out of Darkness, a British horror thriller that stars Chuku Modu and Kit Young. Andrew Cumming is the director. Ruth Greenberg wrote the screenplay. Peter, Out of Darkness. Uh I found this very compelling, even though it would be difficult to make a case for it as a great movie. Mm. Uh, it, it's sort of like a cross between Quest for Fire and Blair Witch Project. <laughs> <laughs> what a great um, description. You know, it's shot in the Scottish Highlands, uh, lots of fog, lots of mm. uh, mud, trees, uh, forests. It's, 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 you know, very Stone Age um, uh, authenticity. Uh, it, they also the, the big selling point for this movie is that the filmmakers uh, developed a, a language. They created a language for this movie, so they're all speaking. It seems like, given that this was set forty five thousand years ago, that that they're a little bit too glib and eloquent when they speak. Also, the cast is multiracial. I'm not quite sure how that works forty five thousand years ago with this tribe. Um, 
And also the language that they create, I mean, to me it sort of sounded like a cross between uh, Urdu and Yiddish. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but, you know, it's a small... Yeah, it could be. <laughs> but it's a small group of, of, uh, of Stone Agers who, um, or Stoned Agers who uh, band together to survive, and then there's these horrible howling sounds and shrieks coming from they don't know where, and then they're sort of picked off by this thing, and we don't know what's going on for a while. It sort of turns didactic and, and, and touchy-feely uh, in ways at the end, which I think sort of deserve uh, the movie. You know, usually whenever you see the attacker for real up close, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a come down. Um, but it does have its, its, I mean, it is powerful uh, in the sense that it holds you. Uh, it does, uh, you know, it's scary, and um, it's well shot. I think it's a first. It's a debut feature for the director, uh, and you know, it's if you like this sort of thing, uh, yeah. it's sounds the, entertaining. Yeah, even with its flaws. Yeah. Out of darkness, Tim. I thought it moved along pretty good. I mean, what are, what are six, seven people in the whole cast? Something like that, all total. Uh, this little group start. of people. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> we're gonna, yeah, we're gonna, you're going to work our way down to a much smaller number. Um, uh, it, but that's what we have to work with these people. And in the, at the beginning of the old man, there's an old man, the sage, and he tells the story. Uh, of, uh, and the story that he's telling is the story of them. Uh, these are supposed to be Paleolithic people. So, like when you, when you see those cave drawings uh, inside caves, these would have been the people who drew who, who drew that stuff. That's the old Stone Age. That's who they're supposed to be. And there's a twist, which I thought was sort of interesting um, uh, when we get toward the end. But mostly, it's about fighting this thing that they call a monster. But is it? That's the thing. Out of Darkness, British horror film is rated R, and it's in wide release. Lisa Frankenstein, romantic comedy slash horror film, directed by Zelda Williams. Diablo Cody is the screenwriter. It stars Catherine Newton and Cole Sprouse. Tim. Yeah, yeah. Zelda Williams, Robin Williams' daughter, a very talented actress and voice uh, and voiceover actress, uh, so she picked that up from her daddy for sure. This is set in the 80s, um, uh, during the period when movies like Pretty in Pink and Valley girls were actually made um, um, so this this looks and sounds sort of like that but there was something about the way it's set in the 80s and in, in the way that they are sort of portraying those girls and these people in the valley that rubbed me the wrong way I felt like they didn't like these people you know I remember those movies from the 80s I like yeah. those movies in the 80s and yeah. I like them now these John Hughes films John yeah. Hughes all those wonderful films and I'm like mm, you know these, these these filmmakers seem to be making fun of those people and that kind of bugged me a little bit about this movie so it's inspired by Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and, and, and probably by the fact that when Mary Shelley wrote that, conceived it anyway, she was just a teenage girl. So we have this teenage girl here who's kind of gothy uh, and a bit of a loner, and uh, she, she has this uh, um, obsession with this uh, Victorian-era uh, poet who's buried in this particular spot, and through a lot of machinations that include a lightning strike, we end up with that corpse coming to life. Now, Mary Shelley believed in science. Uh, completely and totally, which is why she wrote Frankenstein the way she did. They skip science here altogether. This is just all, you know. And then it becomes uh, a hack and slash movie. Uh, he has some parts that are missing, and they have to get the, you know, you have to, she wants to sew them together so she mm -hmm. can build herself a boyfriend. Uh, and 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 we go on the sort of into this sort of hack and slash kind of mean little movie. And I'm like, why why are we doing this to Mary Shelley's wonderful story? Of, of, of love. So I don't know. This just didn't hold up for me uh, the way I hoped it would. It's from the writer of, oh, a uh, young adult and Tubble and Juno with Academy Award. This just doesn't hold up very well. It's not directed all that tightly either.
Well, who's the intended audience as you see it? Are are they those that grew up on the Hughes films or this younger generation? Oh, I'm I'm certain that this is pointed at a much younger generation. Dobla Cody grew up on that on those Hughes films, and I don't think she liked them. It's it's what I'm thinking uh, when it comes to this. I film. think Poor Things is sort of the the you know better equivalent for yeah. this kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, hard to... Well, of course, the original source material, fantastic mm. as, as well. Lisa Frankenstein, rated PG-13. It's in wide release. Coming up on Film Week, we'll hear our critics tell us about the dramatic comedy Suncoast, The Monk and the Gun, and the documentary The Space Race on Nat Geo and other streaming platforms. It's Film Week on L.A. at 89.3. Larry Mantle with critics Peter Rayner and Tim Cogshell remind you that tickets are available for the 22nd Annual Film Week Academy Awards preview. It's on Sunday, March 3rd, the Orpheum Theater, downtown Los Angeles. Tickets at LAist.com slash events. We sure hope to see you there. Back in a minute. It's Film Week on L.A. at 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle, joined by critics Tim Cogshell and Peter Rayner. Reminder, coming up later this hour, Oscar-nominated screenwriter Sammy Birch, who wrote the screenplay for May-December. She's Best Original Screenplay nominee, and this is her first feature film that she's written. We'll talk with her coming up later this hour. And by the way, we put together two hours worth of interviews with Oscar nominees that are going to air on President's Day. So we invite you to join us for that. That's uh, on President's Day. Uh, we're going to have two hours in our Air Talk time slot totally devoted to those interviews that we've conducted. We continue with new films this week with Suncoast, which is inspired by the experiences of writer-director Laura Chin. The film's stars uh, Nico Parker and Laura Linney, Woody Harrelson also in the cast. Peter? This is a terrific little movie and was a surprise for me. Um, it just recently played uh, Sundance uh, and uh, Nico Parker got uh, you know some kind of breakthrough award uh, there. It's um, it's it's a it's basically a mother-daughter conflict movie. Um, uh, Nico Parker is, is a, a you know teenager in high school who's uh, doesn't have much of a social life because she's been, you know, uh, she's been taking care of her brother who's, 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 you know, kind of c completely out of it and it's about to enter a hospice uh, for, you know, uh, uh, brain issues. And, and um, so she's sort of his full-time caregiver. The mother, Laura Linney, works outside the home and they have a very contentious, you know, loving slash contentious relationship. Um, the brother is put into a hospice called Suncoast uh, which is where Terry Schiavo was um, was held uh, for real in in um, I think 2005, and so whenever they uh, visit the uh, the the hospice, there's always a lot of demonstrators and people, you know, because to Terry Schiavo was you know was was on life support, and there was a conflict between her husband who wanted her taken off and her parents who didn't want that, so it became a real big you know religious thing, and um, so. The performances are wonderful. Uh, Laura Linney is 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 really good as usual. Yeah. Um, uh, Woody Harrelson plays one of the protesters, but he's he's a very sympathetic guy, and he sort of befriends Nico Parker uh, because his wife had died some time before, and he understands what she's going through. Um, 
so it, and and then Nico Parker's she she's with these bunch of girls in high school, and you think this is going to turn into some mean girls thing, but but they're actually very sympathetic to her, and and it has some of the most believable teen parties I've ever seen in a movie. But the outstanding thing in this movie is Nico Parker. She's just a marvelous little actress. And for for the long, I was watching this movie, I said, who does she remind me of? Who does she look like? She's Tandy Newton's daughter. Oh, oh. okay. Yeah, and 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 uh, it, it, she's it, it's a, a, a marvelous multi-layered performance and and she can only go up from, you know, wow. it's, yeah. That's great. And a first-time uh, feature director, Laura Chen. Yeah, and it's her first film, and it's very well-directed. It's a very assured first feature. Suncoast is streaming on Hulu. Uh, the Monk and the Gun is in select theaters, and it's set in the kingdom of Bhutan. Uh, the film's written and directed by Paolo Choining Dorji. Peter, what would you think of The Monk and the Gun? Yeah, uh, yeah this is from the same... Uh... So I guess you, lack, you, yak in the classroom. Cl- lack it? in the classroom. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just can't get enough of Bhutan. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> that was a really charming film. It really was, um, and uh, and a surprise Oscar nominee, I believe. Um, this is also a very good movie. It's it's uh, if there's an American uh, sort of entrepreneur or whatever I don't know what you call him who wants to procure a uh, an antique rifle in Bhutan that was used back in the Civil War days in the United States. Um, but this same rifle is, is wanted by the, uh, the chief llama of the, of the village for, for unknown reasons. And we suspect he wants a rifle. What's that for? You know, he wants to set things right. The king of Bhutan has, has abdicated, has given up his... Uh, and so now they have free elections there for the first time. And there's all this kind of election prep going on. And, and a lot of people don't understand what it is or why or why we need this. Um, there's a lot of interaction. A lot of you know people in the village uh, uh, stand out. A lot of funny characterizations. Um, it's it, it's a charming movie, and it also you know it, it wears its ethnography lightly, so that you know you don't feel like you're being uh, lectured to or or given some sort of travelogue or or didactic statement about you know brotherhood or the need for for uh, you know democracy and voting. I mean, actually, the film makes a fairly good case for not having democracy, <laughs> for dictatorship, right? Right. Uh, you know, uh, uh, yeah. the monk and the gun. It, it, think, it, it, very, very, very funny indeed. It is pointed. It has it has some thoughts about democracy. It has some thoughts about American democracy. Uh, in in particular, uh, the the the, the llama uh, when his assistant comes to him, the lawyer, the, 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 he tells him, "I need you to get to get me a gun." And he says, "A gun?" <laughs> like that. <laughs> I've never even seen a gun. He says, "Well." I need a gun. As a matter of fact, I need two guns. Two guns. It's like it's just crazy. It's insane. So he's wandering around looking for this gun, while these this other guy with his companion are looking for the exact same gun. Meanwhile, this young woman who works for the state government, because they're all going to hold these mock elections, uh, trying to get ready for the democratic thing that is going to happen, and did in fact happen. There, it's a democratic constitution. They still have a kingdom, but that did in fact happen. Uh, and she's roaming around to all these communities, trying to explain to people what democracy is and, and what elections are. And they're looking at her like she's out of her mind. <laughs> they're like, yeah, but what does the king think of this? No, the king is abdicating. That's why we're doing this. But what did the king say about it? No, the king <laughs> is the reason why we're doing this. So it sounds like there's plenty of humor, like a yak in the classroom, it, no, which, it's, it's which was a funny, funny it's natural. Yeah, I mean, the, king, the, the royal color is yellow. So when they have this mock election, it's like 90% of the people vote for the yellow color as opposed to three other colors. They say, why? Said, well, because that's the royal color. You know, they didn't get it.
<laughs> it sounds really, really good. The Monk and the Gun from the Kingdom of Bhutan. The film's rated PG-13 in select theaters. The documentary The Space Race uh, shares the experience of the first black astronauts through archival film and interviews. The film's directed by Lisa Cortez and Diego Hurtado de Mendoza. Tim? This is just a fantastic doc that I, I thoroughly enjoyed. I, I, I consider myself uh, fairly knowledgeable about the, the space program. I was in the Air Force for years. I went to the Air Force Academy. There is so much in this film that I did not know about black folks' participation and engagement in the space race from before the space race that was absolutely astounding to me. Um, when, I, when I think about the first black man in space, I generally speaking go to Guy Buford, 1983 space shuttle commander. You know, uh, um, But in fact, back before the Mercury and Apollo programs, there was a guy named Ed Dwight who in 1960 was pegged to be an astronaut, the first black astronaut. John Kennedy, uh, there's a whole complicated story there. Ed's still alive, and he's in this movie. Ed's done all kinds of things that are extraordinary um, uh, that, that I did not know about. He became a sculptor uh, after a very, very set of complicated things happened. Even before Ed, there was a black man named Bob Lawrence who secretly was pegged to become an astronaut, but it was a secret because he was involved in a very highly secret program. So everybody in that program was kept under wraps, not yeah. just him, everyone. But he was actually the first black man pegged to become an astronaut in this country, even before Ed Dwight. The Russians actually put the first black man in space, a black Cuban, an Afro-Cuban, who went into space well before Guy Buford in 1983. Wow. I've not know any of these things. Yeah. Look, there's a list of, uh, of, of, of black astronauts that they lay out in this movie, and it's a wonderful list. It's nice and long. It includes Mae Jemison and, and Winston Scott and all of these people, right on up to Victor Glover from right around here yeah. locally. Yeah, he's right been on our program, oh, yeah. And, 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 and it's a wonderful thing, and, I, and, and I'm glad that they did it. But here's the thing. You can read that whole list. You can read the whole list real quick. About 15. About 15. We need to fix that. This is extraordinary, and I think it might help in fixing that uh, that, that notion there. Uh, Ron, Ron McNair. Of course, we all know about Ron. Yeah. One of these. I did not know as much about him as I thought I did. I, I knew that he was a Ph.D. from MIT and all. I did not know he played the, he played the sax like Herbert Laws. That's that's how good he was. He they, they they wanted him to become a professional saxophone player, but he was just too damn smart <laughs> to, 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 to to only do music. It's just extraordinary. Some stuff. people are particularly gifted with oh, multiple yeah. talents. Yeah. The Space Race is the film, and it's streaming on Nat Geo, Disney Plus, and Hulu. On uh, Monday, February twelfth, is when it debuts. The Space Race is unrated. Float, a romantic drama starring Robbie Amell and Sarah Desjardins. The film's directed by Sharon Lee, who co-wrote the screenplay, uh, and the film is Canadian. Peter, what do you think of Float? Well, this is a Harlequin uh, romance movie um, of a you know fairly okay uh, example. Um, uh, Andrea Bang and uh, and Robbie Amell are, are the are the two leads. She's a uh, she plays a a medical student uh, in Toronto. She visits her parents and very controlling parents in Taipei, but she's never had a break. So she, instead of going to a residency that they think she's going to, she drops down to see her aunt in a small Canadian town. And uh, there's this hunky lifeguard there, played by Robbie Amell, who um, uh, saves her when she's uh, 
sort of drowning kind of, and uh, and so that's the the version of meet cute. Yeah. Um, it, you know, I didn't think they had a whole lot of chemistry, which is a problem in a, in a movie like this. Um, yeah, but it, one one quick point to make, I think, is you know it's directed by a woman, and the uh, the lifeguard character is he's like right out of you know the Bachelor. Uh, and, and there's always talk about, you know, women are sort of objectified in movies, you know, uh, by, by male directors. It works the other way, too. And I don't think it's a flaw necessarily. It's just this is how, you know, we perceive each other. And, and so um, he's, he comes across as a kind of, you know, uh, uh, male idol um, in a way that I'm not sure would be, would be typical of a film if, 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 if a, a guy had directed this film. And, and I, I've, I've seen this, you know, frequently in movies. It's, it's interesting, you know, the, the, the way the gaze changes according to who makes the movie, and I think it certainly plays out in this film. Well, and, and presumably this film is intended for a women's audience. I would think so, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, 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 a, it's a harlequin uh, romance. Not, not very torrid, but yeah. Floor, uh, Float is uh, rated PG-13. It's at the Lumiere Cinema in Beverly Hills and streaming on demand. Disco Boy, a European film directed by Giacomo uh, Abruzzese, uh, who also co-wrote the screenplay. Tim? Oh, this is a very good film. This is a harrowing film, mostly about a, a young man uh, who we'll call Alex, who uh, travels from Belarus into France illegally. Uh, and in order to uh, attain French citizenship, he joins the French Foreign Legion. As you know, famously, the French Foreign Legion will take in anybody. And uh, if you if you serve faithfully for the appropriate amount of time, you will be given French citizenship. Meanwhile, in the Niger Delta, we meet a young black man, the leader of a um, of 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 a, of, a, uh, of a force of people who want to uh, get the colonists, particularly the oil company colonists, out of the Niger Delta. Um, this young man who joins the French Foreign Legion and that young black leader of those rebels are going to meet. Uh, and uh, it's, it's, it's in, they're going to meet, and there's going to be a situation there. Now, then we spend a whole lot of time in a French disco, disco boy here. And something myth- mystical and a little magical happens in this film. Uh, Shades of Beau Travail, the Claire Denny film from the yeah. 1990s, mm-hmm. are here because we spend a lot of time with that young man as he's training uh, to become because he's going to he, he wants this more than anything in the world. Ultimately, this film is about dispossession. It's about it's about it's about trying to to get agency and, and the powers and the authorities that keep us from our agency and the things they make us do to get that agency. That's what this film is about. And it's ultimately quite devastating and with, with a few sort of psychedelic twists and turns and a little bit of mysticism it, it really gets to you in the end and, and, and we end up in the disco the score is extraordinary electro punk rock just extraordinary this guy who plays the lead in this his name is Franz Rodeski or something like that Rodeski. look at his face he looks like a young Joaquin Phoenix he even has the cleft he looks exactly like a young Joaquin Phoenix, and he's that good an actor, too. Wow. Disco Boy, that's Franz Wagowski. Talking about uh, Giacomo Abruzzese is the director and co-screenwriter. Disco Boy is unrated, and it's at Lemley's Glendale and Lemley's Royal in West L.A. Uh, we're just about out of time, uh, but I do want to ask about the Santa Barbara International Film Festival, which our own Claudia Puig is uh, the director of, the, the programmer for the festival. Peter, just briefly share with us about uh, some of the highlights of Santa Barbara. Yeah, well, it's going on uh, through uh, the following Sunday, and um, they have a lot of tributes to almost everybody who's been nominated for an Oscar, it seems like. Uh, 
throughout the week, there'll be, you know, Leonard Malton is having an evening with Robert Downey Jr. Mark Ruffalo will be uh, also attributed, uh, Jeffrey Wright, uh, Bradley Cooper, Paul Giamatti, Annette Bening. Wow. Uh, there's a, 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 I don't know what they call it, but there's Lily Gladstone, Col- Coleman Domingo, America Ferreira, Divine Joy Randolph, Andrew Scott, Daniel Brooks. I mean, there's just a ton of people. Um, who are going to be uh, giving tributes to. There's also a director's panel, a uh, producer's panel. All of the Oscar-nominated screenwriters uh, will be uh, talking on a, on a panel. I hear you know, some of the films there that are supposed to be quite good include Lucha and All You uh, Hear Is Noise, The Movie Man, and... Um, Sherry and Lambchop. You remember Sherry oh, yeah, Lewis? Oh, yeah, of course, Sherry Lewis. Sherry yeah. Lewis. So I think TV her daughter star. will be there, and, oh. and it's, a, it's a documentary about Sherry Lewis and Lambchop. Very good. That's all the Santa Barbara International Film Festival, which is on through Saturday, February 17th. Also, the news from Thursday that there's a new Oscar category, Best Achievement in Casting. It begins with the 98th Oscar Ceremony 2025. It's Film Week on L. Latest 89.3 coming up. Sammy Birch, the screenwriter of May December, will talk with us about her first feature film and to get an Oscar nomination. It's Film Week on LAist 89.3. Support for Elias comes from FX's Feud, Capote vs. the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Callista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. Emmy eligible in all limited series categories. Television Academy members can watch all episodes at fxnetworks.com fyc. Support comes from Rancho La Puerta, a health resort with 84 years of wellness experience providing summer vacations centered on mindfulness and well-being. Activities include sunrise hikes, water classes, yoga, and spa therapies, all set in a backdrop of a dreamy summer sky. A six-acre organic garden provides fresh fruits and vegetables daily. Learn more at RanchoLaPuerta.com. It's Film Week on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle with Oscar nominee Sammy Birch of the Netflix streaming movie Made December. Birch is nominated for Best Original Screenplay. It was her first script to sell after growing up in a Hollywood family. Made December is directed by Todd Haynes, stars Julianne Moore, Charles Melton, and Natalie Portman. Sammy, it's so good to have you with us today on Film Week. Oh my God, thank you so much for, for having me. I'm thrilled. Con- Congratulations, and you are in heady company in this category. (laughs) The writers of Past Lives, The Holdovers, Maestro, and Anatomy of a Fall. You're in great company. It's an an honor to be among them, absolutely. Well, May December tells the story of a married couple whose relationship began as a crime and as tabloid fodder. Julianne Moore's character was 36, Melton's was 13. Now in the film, the couple's kids are ready to go off to college, and Natalie Portman arrives as an actor embedding herself with the family so she can portray Moore's character in an upcoming film. Sammy, how did this idea for uh, the plot of May December come to you? Well, I, you know, I, I've the tabloid culture of the 90s is something I really have kind of thought a lot about because I really um, was inundated with it 
uh, growing up in West L.A. at the time of O.J. and that's Monica Lewinsky's was in the neighborhood and um, that it's very curious, I think, the whole thing and how it's kind of evolved into this true crime um, moment that we're having right now, which is escalating day by day, it feels like. So um, I really wanted to look at something with a bit of distance and breath. Um, and so this idea of looking at a couple like this, um, who was 20 years into their story um, and through a an actress you know, coming to play this role, it kind of fractured it and, and gave it more room for for humor, for investigation. And, and that was kind of the, the beginning. Yeah. Part. So Portman's character gives you the way in mm-hmm. to unsettle this relationship and uncover things about the couple and their kids. Absolutely. And I think also, you know, right from the beginning, it always felt like this was going to take place right before uh, a high school graduation, this this kind of um, threat of an empty nest, you know, this this especially for Joe's character, who's played so beautifully by Charles Melton in the movie, there's um, a coming of age element to it, I think. And that emotionally really uh, connected me to his character from the beginning. Were you thinking from the start of this, um, having a satirical tone, it's a dark comedy in a sense. And was that, was that where you were going from the, the, first writing you did on this definitely I mean there was it's always been a mix it's always had this sort of dark humor that's that at a certain point gives way to something really heartbreaking and humane and um yeah I think I think that mix is is what I like as a as a viewer also we're talking with Sammy Birch, who's the Oscar-nominated screenwriter of May-December, which is streaming on Netflix. Todd Ains, the director, and a very impressive cast, Julianne Moore and Natalie Portman. We know what to expect from them, but Charles Melton is a revelation. I was disappointed he wasn't nominated for Best Supporting Actor because the the nuance in his performance and his his evolution over time in the film is 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 very moving. And I was I'm wondering, you know, I'm sure you expected for the two women leads, everybody would think they're going to be great. But what was your response seeing Melton performing the character you wrote? It was such an incredible gift. I mean, I. I love him so much. He is so, so talented, so nuanced, so vulnerable. Um, he really put so much into this character, and um, and it was a surprise. I mean, I, I knew. I think we knew from the beginning this this role was going to be a discovery, and you know, thankfully Todd Haynes is is uh, has a history of that, um, and his casting director Laura Rosenthal is is so amazing. So. Um, I knew whoever this would be, it would probably be someone I wasn't familiar with, but I couldn't have ever predicted the, this sort of performance that Charles gave in this movie. You're also a casting director, too, right? You and your husband have cast several films? Well, I, I was a, I've cast some things, and the two of us have been uh, casting assistants Okay. in lo- local casting So assistants. you know what's involved in, in finding the it's... actors to match the roles. 
Um, and and uh, I don't, you, you, as you mentioned, there's another casting director on this film. But you know, what's your sense of what they were looking for in in the portrayal of Joe? Well, I think that um, I mean, he's always written as a Korean American actor, and I think that Laura cast a pretty wide net. Um, the I was only I saw the last I don't know six like the top six you know when it had gotten to that point but I know many many people taped an audition for this and um, it was a a range of actors of you know there was a a man a great actor in in Canada I remember who had seemed like hadn't done anything at all and you know obviously Charles has this TV show but it's this Riverdale yeah Riverdale which is a very different character and tone and and world so it was you know it was very exciting what was your relationship like working uh with todd haynes and you know i know often with screenwriters there there's almost no interaction once a movie is underway did you have much contact with him as it was being shot oh yeah i mean the i've i'm completely spoiled because (laughs) todd is the best he is as as wonderful as anyone could be and was so generous and so collaborative. And I mean, little on the set, I was ready, of course, at that first phone call to just be like, and here's Here the it file. Is. Do with it See as you it. will. The premiere if I'm invited. I mean, I was literally at that uh, point of view and it wasn't like that at all. He was... Um, you know, it was it was very much he would give notes and I would turn a new draft and, you know, we'd talk on the phone. And we met actually in person on set for the first time really? when I visited because a lot of this happened when it was still pretty locked down um, in the pandemic. And, you know, it was like meeting a pen pal <laughs> is what it felt like. Um, but, yeah, I wasn't on set for most of it. I visited for a few days, um, but I was, you know. It was aware of, of what was going on. Did the actors from talk with you at all about uh, this the screenplay? Natalie did because Natalie's a producer on the film, and she actually was the person to get the script to Todd Haynes. So um, that was such a gift. And I, the first time I met Todd was with Natalie also. So it was a you know few hours of of talking about the script, and there was such a kinship right from the beginning. Um, I did not meet. Julianne or Charles until I was on physically on set and and I actually saw Julianne as Gracie first through the monitor as fully I mean I just the the full body chills of of when they're at graduation of finally seeing this character come to life was Uh, that had to be such a thrill but was it also (laughs) scary because you've lived with these characters you know for the whole time that you're writing it and there has to be some degree of investment in them. They're your creations. So was that thrill mixed at all with any trepidation? You know, I I have trouble trusting people. And it's been really interesting, the level of these talents. It's like I've, I've found the level where I'm like, there was, I was trusting full-heartedly, wholeheartedly. I was, I was so... Um, there was no trepidation because when you're talking about Todd Haynes, Natalie Portman, Julianne Moore, there there need not yeah, be you could trust, you know, yeah, could trust. It was amazing and such a gift. And I mean, these are heroes. These are people that I've 
just worshipped for so many years, of course. And as you saw their performances, were there aspects of it that you thought, wow, that wasn't something I wrote, but that that's very effective what they just did? Oh, absolutely. Of course, so much. I mean, uh, Julianne had such an impossible role, really, because I think so much of the film orbits around this character being unknowable in her whole heart. Her awareness is not knowable to us or even me. Um, And she had to make that person whole. She was also brilliantly decided to do a lisp that was not um, in the the script. Um, She really created this this person that then Natalie was able to um, imitate where they had no rehearsals. I mean, they were, there was, there, there's a lot of meta elements of this film, but there were no rehearsals were for no the film. Rehearsals. So they all, they tried to basically schedule it out um, in order, but there was a very real element of Natalie studying Julianne so then she could play this character later in the film. I didn't know that. So Todd, clearly he wanted that Absolutely. To be part of the creative process. We'll come back and continue our conversation with Oscar-nominated screenwriter Sammy Birch, nominated for Best Original Screenplay for the Netflix streaming uh, satire May-December, starring Julianne Moore, Natalie Portman, and Charles Melton. We'll be back on Film Week in just one minute. It's Film Week on L.A.S. 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle with Sammy Birch, the writer of the Oscar-nominated Best Original Screenplay for May-December, streaming on Netflix, directed by Todd Haynes, and starring Julianne Moore, Natalie Portman, and Charles Melton. I mentioned at, at the opening of our conversation that you come from a Hollywood family. Your mother, Jackie Birch, was a casting director. Mm-hmm. So so you grew up in her office, I understand, even um, reading sides with people who were coming in for audition. Yes. So that didn't scare you off of this business? <laughs> I guess not. I think it got into the blood too early. I was, uh, yeah, very much um, Eloise in a in a casting audition office, <laughs> which is a very strange place to be. Um, the, if you've ever auditioned for anything, you can the, the energy is not great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, a lot of anxiety. A in lot the of room. anxiety and. You know, there's just I think it it distil, it's a distillation in a certain way of what L.A. can be in a in a more macro sense of this, you know, this longing, you know, that that is varied, you know, for for people. But um, but it's such a fun area of this of making a movie. You know, it's very exciting, and every every person I've known in my life, including very much my my mom. Um, they love casting and it's you know there's nothing more exciting than when someone comes in and gives a great audition and and you know you're getting to see this raw talent it's it's cool and what led you to pursue screenwriting you know i always wanted really to do that pretty young i was um writing plays in high school that i was you know directing with my friends in it and um i went to college for screenwriting and um, I think I also just, you know, my, my father is someone who's very um, encyclopedic in his film knowledge. He came out here, you know, he was like one of these kids, like 
obsessed with silent film and getting little. I can relate to that. Yeah. What, what did he do in the in the business or does does uh, it rain? It was definitely ranged. He came out. He was um, more of an editor, and then he worked for a long time in development. He was writing some, and then he he was producing some on his own. But for the predominant. Um, time of my childhood he was working at development. So you're hearing all his recounting of great films and history. Oh, yeah. and you, you were just immersed in that, it sounds like. It was very much, you know, I'm, I can't speak, but I'm watching the, the Marx Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's the family business that, that you end up pursuing. Where'd you go to high school locally? I went to Archer. The Archer yeah. Girls School. Yeah, Archer Academy, isn't it? Archer you're, School for Girls. Archer School, okay. <laughs> uh, we're talking with Sammy Birch, Oscar-nominated for Best Original Screenplay for the Netflix streaming uh, drama May-December. Todd Haynes, the director, uh, Natalie Portman, Julianne Moore, and Charles Melton are are the stars. Were, were you um, disappointed that yours was the only uh, role in the film that was Oscar-nominated? I mean, it's certainly bittersweet because I am. We've become such a a great team and family. This group of people, and it's um, you know, Alex and I have been saying it feels like we are like the lone survivors of a of an expedition through the Oregon Trail. You know, we're the we're the last ones standing, but it's um, you know, I, I think their work speaks for itself, and is is so incredibly beautiful and I'm I'm so excited to to see what Charles does next and and every, all of them and you get to represent the film a film that you exactly it's carry, an honor to represent yeah, that you're it. proud of clearly yeah. um, how did you sell the script you mentioned that Natalie Portman who's an executive producer took it to Todd Haynes but how did you get it to her well the 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 first very important domino of the miraculous way that happened was um Jessica Elbaum and Will Farrell, whose production company Gloria Sanchez, they were the first producers um, in, involved. I wrote this before I had any representation, but I got signed with the manager and then it went out and and Jessica and Will just got it from the first second. And so it was it was them to Natalie to Todd and with Todd comes Christine Vachon and Pam Koffler and all his amazing collaborators. So this is the script that got you representation yes. that gets you an Oscar nomination. I know. No, it's crazy. It's too much. <laughs> uh, that is a wild story. Yeah, it's like no one else who, who wants to break into the film business should necessarily look at you no. as this is going to be their route. Uh, it, was, it was wacky. Uh, I have to ask you about a, a bit of controversy over uh, the story because Mary Kay Latorno is dead and this I know that uh, her um, marriage was sort of the inspiration for the story that you tell here. Her ex-husband Vili said he was offended that he wasn't consulted. He said, I'm alive. I essentially lived this story um, and and um, was upset that he wasn't contacted by anyone in the film. And I wonder, in hindsight, do you wish you would have contacted him? Is, is there a legal problem with having it contacted him? What, what was the thought in that? For me, this was never intended to be a retelling. Just right from the beginning, it was not a rights issue at all. It was the element of the fact that this is a commentary on true crime, that there is um, a freedom that I felt was important that to not be 
uh, accurately telling someone's story, which this is not. So you would have felt limited by that, you think, if you would have talked with him? Well, I think this would just be a very different movie. I mean, I th- right from the very beginning, you know, the, the process of creating these characters and this plot and these this world was was not one of photocopy and changing around some de- I mean that that wasn't the process like I I these are original characters that you know throughout this process it's been interesting I mean of course there's you know r- real life inspirations but it's yes I feel that it's my it, my goal with this film was not a retelling, not a not a true crime biopic, absolutely. Thank you so much for coming in and talking about May, December. Congratulations again on your Oscar nomination. Thank you. And we'll look forward to what comes from the future. I, I assume you have tremendous interest uh, on future <laughs> scripts and all the best on that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Sammy Birch joining us, the screenwriter of May, December. It's streaming on Netflix, directed by Todd Haynes, starring Julianne Moore, Natalie Portman, and Charles Melton. Uh, Birch is nominated for Best Original Screenplay. Thank you so much for joining us on Film Week. Have a wonderful weekend. We'll talk with you next week. One event can change a family for generations. I'm Emily Kwong, host of a new podcast from LA Studios called Inheriting. It's about Asian American and Pacific Islander families and their histories. Join me for an immersive storytelling event at the Crawford in Pasadena. It's June 27th. Get your tickets now at las.com slash events.